0: We are going to be in Romans one, and it's not very often that uh, when you're associate on staff, you get to do two sermons, one right after the other. So I had to spend extra time trying to think through what to preach on. I got more time; I don't have to fit all the content into one. Uh, and so uh, I was chatting with some people. What should I preach on? What are uh, good things to be thinking about at this time? And um, Somebody said, well, you know, with all the news that's been going on, we have issues with the pandemic, and we've got issues with uh, what's going on with racism and with uh, all that's involved with that. Uh, I I feel like I'm navel-gazing all the time, uh, and I want to look up at the cross. And so that's what we're going to do. We've got two sermons, a small little miniature series I've called Living in Light of the Gospel, pattern and practice. Our text for today is Romans 1, 8 through 17, and uh, we're going to be focusing on on pattern. I tend to be a relatively simplistic thinker, and so I I like to put things into really simple buckets. Um, Why am I supposed to do something, and then what does that look like? And for the most part, as long as I know the why and I figure out how to do it, then I'm I'm all right with that. So today, think about this as the why, and then think about uh, next week when we get there as the what. And uh, I forgot to say this initially, but I'm Michael. If you're watching online you're not sure who I am, I'm on staff here. It's good to have you joining us here. So we're going to start with Romans 1, 8 through 17. And we're going to be doing lots of flipping today for those who are here present. Uh, be mindful of that. So Romans 1, starting in verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you But thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written the righteous shall live by faith. Paul was most likely on his third missionary journey when he wrote this letter. Uh, you can see Corinth is in the bottom right, and we have Rome, I'm sorry, yep, yeah, and the Rome in the top left. And Paul had wanted to be there, as he said in the text. He had a desire to come there, but for one reason or another, he was kept from doing so. And what he's looking to do and hoping to do, and he alludes to in the text, is He is wanting to go to Rome, to preach the gospel there, to see people come to faith in Christ, and then use Rome as a launching platform for Spain and to reach the area over there. But before he does that, he needs to take all the money that he's gathered, which he's been doing on his missionary trip, and he needs to take it back to the church that's in Jerusalem. And so he thinks, well, since I can't be there in person, I think what I will do instead is I'll I'll write a letter, which is a pretty typical thing. Obviously, the Bible's full of letters. And so he does that, and that's the book of Romans. And he says something very, very interesting in verse 15. He says, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. He gives two main ideas or main reasons why he wants to be there in Rome preaching the gospel, why he's eager to do so. He says in verse 11, I long to see you, that I may impart some gift that is for mutual encouragement. So he's looking for like this one-anothering that people do. And then the second is that he also wants to reap a harvest among the Gentiles who are there. But notice, he says, I want to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. These are believers. Verse 8, first I thank my God because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. He thanks them because what they're doing, what they're proclaiming within the midst of a Roman city, Rome itself, is amazing. It's reaching far beyond where he expected it to reach or where normal people might think that it would go. And so it's strange that he's saying to them, I'm, I'm so thankful for how well you're living out the gospel, but yet I also want to be preaching the gospel to you. So here is my thesis for why he says this. As believers, we are never done With the gospel. Never. We don't move on from it. We ought to be continually soaking ourselves in the realities and the truths of the gospel. It is in the gospel that we see who God is most clearly within the gospel. And so to wander away from that is to wander away from that which energizes us and gives us life. So we're going to get there in four steps. The first is we're going to look into Romans for support. I've just given you a hypothesis, my thesis statement. I'm gonna back that up with what I believe is evidence in Rome. I'm sorry, in Romans. Then I'm gonna go larger. I'm gonna move on to the rest of the New Testament. Hopefully, I'm gonna show to you that the rest of the New Testament, both in Pauline letters and in others, show an evidence that this is something that we ought to be doing on a routine basis. After that, I spent some time thinking about I was asking a question, okay there are a couple passages I can think of where it seems like writers are saying, okay, you need to be moving beyond the simple stuff. So then I'm going to engage those two passages and say, what's the difference between what he's talking about here in 1.15 and these other texts we're going to look at and then the, and then the others, which are Hebrews 5 and 6 and 1 Corinthians 3. What, what's the difference there? Because they look like they're talking about the same thing, but I'm saying that they're not. And then lastly, how does this relate to daily living? So kind of like, the well, here's the information... Well, let me show you why this is important. Let me show you why this is significant. And I'm trying to be really heavy on non-application, okay? So I'm not working against that. I love application. I believe in application. But this is part of that not navel-gazing. I just want to turn our faces up to the cross, and I want us to just sit and bask in that. So for this week, it's going to be really light. The only application is going to be just Take the gospel day in and day out and soak yourself in it. Just savor it. Think about it. Work through it. First, let's go to Romans. I find evidence for this thesis. We ought to be taking ourselves back to the gospel continually in the immediately preceding two verses. So if you think about Romans, it's Thanksgiving, prayer, greeting. And then Paul jumps in with his thesis statement, verses 16 and 17 and then he expands on verses 16 and 17 in 118 all the way through the end of chapter 11 after that he gets into application so it would make sense that he's going to clarify why he says he's eager to preach the gospel to those who are in Rome why i am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of god for salvation to everyone who believes Jew and Gentile and then he says for in it in the gospel The righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith. Maybe if you have a textual note like I do, it says, or for by uh, beginning and ending in faith. Or maybe your version says, from start to finish by faith. There's a famous statement that John Piper is known for, there's a number of them, but one is that the same faith that justifies us, makes us righteous, is the same faith that sanctifies us. And that statement is trying to work against this notion that all Jesus does is save me from my sins. So all the disagreements that we've had over the past 30, 40, 50, 60 years that deal with lordship salvation and deal with easy believism and deal with uh, all the contexts and situations that how do we look into somebody else's life and wonder, how can they be living for 5, 10, 15, 20 years with no fruit? All that Discussion, and I'm not trying to say one way or the other, but all that discussion is dealing with this issue. It's the same object of faith. Verse 17. From faith to faith. From faith for faith. I'll make it a little more clear. Look at the next statement. For it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is straight out of Habakkuk 2, and three texts deal with this. Hebrews 10... I'm forgetting the other one, and then our text here in Romans 1. And it's interesting that not all the writers quote the text in the same way. Like, you would think that if we're supposed to be biblically faithful, that the New Testament writers would be biblically faithful by taking the same statement that they find in the Old Testament and putting it verbatim, whatever their letter is, that they end up writing that we end up having in our canon of the New Testament. That's not the case. It's actually written down and interpreted, I shouldn't say interpreted, translated in different Ways. That's because the nugget is the same, but the statement is different. It's like when your parents say to you the same thing, but they say it in 15 different ways. It's like, oh, you finally get it that one time. That's the idea that's here. So let's look at what is happening in Habakkuk too. For context, Habakkuk is a prophet. Um, The Assyrians have taken away part of the Jews. The Babylonians are going to come and conquer. And Habakkuk is really unsatisfied that God is using evil people Siri's talking to me. God is really unhappy that Habakkuk, I'm sorry, Habakkuk is really unhappy that God is using evil people in Babylon to judge his people. He feels like that's not fair. And so they're having this discourse, this back and forth, kind of like what we see in Job. And so he says, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. Habakkuk, if it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul, this is Babylon, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. There's an implication there. The implication is Habakkuk, if I'm telling you that you are to wait for it, that's not a moment. That is a moment after moment after moment after moment after moment. Habakkuk, when Babylon comes you ought to still be living by faith in my word, that what I have said will actually come to pass. That takes this faith concept and moves it beyond just this nugget of I'm expressing faith in this moment. And it says, no, I'm expressing faith continually day after day after day. And that will become more clear as we go beyond Romans. So from faith for faith, the righteous shall live by faith. They're making a point. That point is the same faith that saves us, declares us righteous, justifies us, is the same faith that sanctifies us. And now the burden is on me to show you that I believe that object is the gospel, whether it's for initial salvation or whether it's for continuing day on into our lives. As I said, what's interesting about Romans is that it's almost entirely gospel. It's like over 70% gospel. He says his thesis statement in 16 and 17, and then he goes for 10 chapters into the end of chapter 11, and it's all just how the gospel engages life. So Romans 2 and 3, this is how the gospel informs how we view ourselves and our fellow man. You think that you're free from sin because you're Jewish? That's not the case. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 4, how do I live in light of, uh, how do I view others in light of this gospel? Romans 5, the gospel helps us understand suffering. Romans 6 and 7, the gospel helps us understand how we view sin. Romans 8, the gospel helps us understand how we're to view ourselves in light of the fact that we're saved and we still sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 9 through 11, that's that bit that talks all about the Jews and how God's not done with them. Well, the gospel informs how we view others in light of what God has said about them in their unbelief. In short, Romans is all about the single, solitary gospel that's it. It's all about the gospel. So, Romans clearly shows we ought to be focusing on the gospel. Well, perhaps I've misunderstood. Let's go further. Let's go broader. How about the rest of the New Testament? John 15. Go ahead and turn there if you have a Bible with you. I've got one nugget up on the screen, but we're going to do more than what we have for it to be helpful. So, John 15. Jesus is talking about being the vine. He says, I am the vine. My Father is the vine dresser. And then in verse 4, abide in me as I abide in you. And then what if we go on further down? Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. It's getting a little more clear what abiding looks like. How about verse 10? If you keep my commandments, You will abide in my love. What is his commandment? Love God, love others. How is this most clearly shown? In the death of Jesus on the cross. This is the gospel. Abiding involves going to the truth that God has revealed in the gospel over and over again. Let's go another step further. Let's go to Colossians 1. We've got two here in Colossians So Colossians 1 verses 21 through 23, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, what is that faith? The faith of taking God at his word. What has he said? I have died for your sins. Live in light of this, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. That's pretty explicitly clear. To shift from the hope of the gospel leads down a path of faithlessness. And we'll get to the why that's so important at the end. How about a verse, or I'm sorry, a chapter or two later, Colossians three sixteen. It starts off, Colossians 3, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Verse 2, set your mind on things that are above, and then How you do that is what flows out of that. And so in verse 16, it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs one another, with thankfulness in your hearts. We are letting this word of who Jesus is live in us, and it is what we are to draw from when we are communicating with one another. It's not just conversations about how the garden is doing or what's going on with Uncle Jimmy. It is talking about the hope of the gospel because when you're talking to another human being, you don't know what's going on in their life. You don't know the condemnations that are happening in their hearts and in their lives. How about 1 Corinthians 15? Now I would remind you, brothers, as a reminder, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. There it is again. Have faith in the word that was preached, that Jesus has died for sinners. And just take a mental note here. This is Corinthians, and we're going to go to Corinthians again, First Corinthians. And note that here he's saying to them, He's drawing them to the gospel. So when he's talking earlier in chapter 3, which we'll get to next, and he says, I want to move beyond the simple stuff. I want to go to the solid food and not the milk. This is not what he's talking about because he says at the end he wants them to go there. Let's do two more. 2 Timothy chapter 2. All I'm trying to do is just make this abundantly clear. This is what we ought to be doing. 2 Timothy 2.8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, who's preached in my gospel. There it is. Timothy. Timothy was in Ephesus. He was essentially standing in for Paul. Some people have said that he was like a pastor in Ephesus. That's not quite the case. It's really more like he was an under apostle to Paul. There were many times where Paul wanted to go somewhere and he couldn't, so he said, I'm going to send Timothy. So, he is saying to a man who's established in the faith, who's been around the circuit of Asia Minor with Paul, this is not a simple guy. This is a guy that Paul trusts implicitly. And he's saying to Timothy, remember the gospel. It's not an issue of immature versus mature. It's remember the gospel, Timothy. This is what we're building our whole foundation on. One more. 1 John chapter 1, verse 3. That which was from the beginning, I'm starting in verse 1, which we have seen, which we have heard, and which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, um, to testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. And this is John writing to churches who are in Asia Minor, in modern-day Turkey, and he's saying to them, remember the gospel, come back to the gospel. So there's. Support from Romans. There's support from the New Testament. Let's compare what's going on here with two passages. So, if you've got a Bible, if you want to go to Hebrews 5, put a finger there, and then go over to 1 Corinthians 3, flip back and forth. I'll have it up on the screen. That'll be for the people who are watching on the live stream, but I would say maybe after five or six rows, it might be difficult for you to see the text that's on the screen. And all I'm trying to do is I'm trying to show you that what he talks about. Here is different than what he's talking about in 1 Corinthians and what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. So, 1 Corinthians 3 and Hebrews 5, and I'll read the contexts that are important. About this, we have much to say to you, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. Then I'm going to skip on to verse 14. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and a faith toward God. And then I'm going to skip down to verse 6 where he says, Or verse 4, for it's impossible for those who have tasted the heavenly gift, verse 6, for them to have that because then they will have fallen away. 1 Corinthians 3, starting in verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. As I looked at these, I found three main ideas that rose to the surface. The first has to deal with this issue of backsliding. Dull of hearing in Hebrews 5. Fallen away in Hebrews 6. And of the flesh. In other words, their lives are lived in such a way that the writer of Hebrews feels like he needs to give them a warning. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul is saying, I mean, y'all don't even look like you're supposed to be believers. And we know the context of all the issues that that church was going through. It was really messed up. But it's not that they need to leave the gospel. It's that the problem is they're not living in light of the gospel. This is more clear once we go to the next one. At least it was for me. This issue of time, for by this time in Hebrews 5. Or we should be going on to maturity. We should be there by now in 6. Or in 1 Corinthians 3, you are still of the flesh. Like growth is not taking place. You go to the doctor You get checked out when you're a child, and then you go again for another well-child check. When you don't grow, that's a problem. And the doctor says, Mom, Dad, there's a problem here. Growth is not taking place. Paul is saying that to these believers there. And then I found this other one, which was issue of content. Basic principles, milk, solid food, elementary doctrine. What is that that he's talking about? Well, we get the best understanding from Hebrews 5, and 6. Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instructions about washing, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Let's just take four of those for simplistic sake. The other two are more relevant to the context these people live in or lived in. So we've got repentance from dead works, faith towards God, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. That's Christianity 101. In fact, that's below Christianity 101. That's the most simplistic stuff. And what the writer is saying is you're not living in light of these truths. So what I'm arguing is that what we see in these two passages differs from what we see in Romans 115, because in these passages, these people are being talked to because they have not heeded what we find in Romans 115. In other words, what is the conclusion of not living by faith day in and day out with our eyes on the gospel? Answer, apostasy. Neglecting the cross. And it's not like this ho-hum negative thing. It's like you got to understand the motive and the intention behind it. So let's go there. How does this relate to our daily living? These are not meant to be a shackle or a burden when Jesus says his yoke is easy and his burden is light He's serious about that. Perhaps you've spent a lot of time in church, and perhaps there's been lots of talk about how you need to be living this way all the time. You just need to be on. It's just really heavy on application. That's what life was like for me when I went to school. I loved the school that I went to, but it was really heavy on how my life needed to look right. Well, I kept on running into a problem. I sin all the time, and Jesus says that he has great hope for those who sin, and what I found was that a lot of people, they just walk right beyond motive. They say, here's how you're supposed to live. Live this way. Here's what the image that you're supposed to be measured up against looks like. Now go live that way. A news story came across my feed this past week, or rather one that led to a link. And a couple years ago, there was a young lady who, um, she was, I think, 17 at the time. And uh, she was in high school, conservative Christian school out on the East Coast. And she got pregnant. As far as sins go, that one's probably got a lot of baggage tied to it. I mean, it gets pretty obvious that you've sinned once the baby starts growing and your stomach expands. And how the school responded was very interesting. Initially, they wanted to not allow her to walk and participate in any way, shape, or form in graduation. And the question has to be asked, what is the tie between graduating from high school and sinning? One is a moral choice. The other merely has to do with the accomplishments that you've made because of the choices that you've made over your career as a student. Now, I'm not arguing in favor of that, but what I'm saying is that's kind of the context that some of us have lived in where we think, okay, if you violate this standard, all of a sudden everything's changed. I mean, the dominoes fall and there needs to be immense ramifications. This is probably why people have such a hard time with coming to church when they live outside of the context of church because they know Aunt Molly or somebody else who was kicked out of the church because they said the wrong thing or because they're wearing the wrong type of clothes. Generally speaking... We don't often lend the gospel to people. We often lend judgment to them. But the gospel has profound words for us. Just think about the way Jesus handled his engagement with the woman who was caught in adultery. When he said, let him who is the first to cast the stone do so, guess who was the only one who was able to do so? The only one who withheld the right to cast the stone. It was Jesus. That was it. Everybody left because they realized they also couldn't do it because they didn't live up to the measurement. That's not the point. The point isn't live up to the measurement. The point is live in light of the fact that God lives up to the measurement for you. There's hope in the gospel for whatever we face. So here it is. Here are five ways that I want you to see how this relates to daily living. Not like a have to, but like a wow, just think about how much God loves you type of thing. Number one, in beholding the gospel, we are changed. 2 Corinthians 3, we all, with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, are changed from one degree of glory to the next. Just stop for a moment and think about that. When you look at the gospel, you are changed. I mean, how many of us pine after change We've got documentaries that talk about how people need to change. We've got racial injustice going on. We're looking for change. Guess where change takes place? In beholding the gospel. In beholding the gospel, we fight against running to potato chips at the end of the day when we've had a hard day and we just want to stuff our face with food. Guess what? That's me. I love potato chips. Man, the gospel changes me so that I don't have to be putting my hope in feeling that food in my stomach. In beholding the gospel, we see the glory of the Lord. We can just go another chapter, just a couple comments later in 2 Corinthians 4. It says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ, of God who is, or in the faith of Jesus Christ. In the gospel, we see the knowledge of God's love for us. How about in beholding the gospel, we are in the process of being saved. We saw this a moment ago. I didn't draw it out. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. There it is, clear as day. In the gospel, you are being saved. There's a reason to run to the gospel that's not drudgery, because in the gospel, you are being saved. God, I did it again. You are being saved in the gospel. Number four, in beholding the gospel, we see the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards us. Ephesians 1 has been so helpful to me Sorry, I can't think and turn at the same time. I'm thinking through go eat popcorn and I'm getting messed up. Okay, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. All right, Ephesians 1. Paul says, I I do not cease to give thanks for you, verse 16. And I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in him. So he's about to tell them a whole bunch of things that they need to be doing. And before he says, here's the do, he says, just check this out. Pray that God shows you some things. And the third thing he prays for is in 18, or 19, that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. In beholding the gospel, we see the power of God. When we are faced with the frustration, and the sorrow of this world, we see the power of God. When we feel like We can't run from sickness or from pain. We go to the gospel, and there is hope there. Because let me tell you what, there's no hope anywhere else. It doesn't exist. There is no power in substance. There is no power in time. There is no power in what I am able to do. If somebody says, you know, because I was able to do it, you're able to do it, that's malarkey. I mean, it's just a bunch of chance As far as they're concerned, if you're not given the right skills, I mean, I'm not turning into Michael Jordan. Let's just be real about that. When I was a kid, I wanted to be a basketball player. It's not going to happen. I had my hopes set on Pele because he was short and he was a soccer player, but alas, my legs aren't as strong as him. Point being, it's in the power of the gospel that we find hope in the midst of all the sorrow and the difficulty that we face. Also, in beholding the gospel. We are reminded that we are under grace. Romans 6.14 For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but you are under grace. Just take a moment. Close your eyes. Think about that. Whatever you did yesterday, whatever you did the day before, you don't have to be perfect. You are under grace. Where do you see grace most clearly in the fact that God has died for you. It is no more clear than that. God has died for you. You are under grace, not law. Okay, so there's how it's related to daily living. Here's the homework slash two concepts that have just changed the way that I look at life. I'm only 37 years old, so if you're older than me, I'm sorry. Perhaps I'm speaking from a lack of experience, but these have been so valuable to me because by nature, I am a Pharisee. I see that standard, and I want to live by it. I see others not living by that standard, and I want to judge them. And this has just blown the lid off of that, exploded it, just destroyed it, demolished it. Think about sin, not only in the category of what's right and wrong, but think through the lens that God has made you. He has given you things like emotions, feeling, sensations. He made you for a purpose. That way, that is so that you can experience who He is. And what I'm coming to is just this final, think about a a, a rifle shot. This is this final bit If I can make this as more concentrated than I have and just go down to the very core center of why the gospel is so beautiful, if nothing else has convinced you, allow these two things to convince you of why you should be going back to the gospel. Because in the gospel, we see that God is for us because he shows his love towards sinful humanity. Here are seven verses for seven days, Sunday through Saturday for the next week would challenge you, not so that you can live up to a standard, not because it's drudgery, but because Jesus has promised that his yoke is easy and this is his yoke. I would challenge you to write these down on a note card, put them on a note on your phone, stick them somewhere where you're going to see it 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, 80, 100 times a day. Make it your lock screen so when you go to flip open your phone, you see this first. And just be reminded, I'm not calling you to a standard. Just This is God saying to you, I love you so profoundly that Jesus, my son, came and died for you. Romans 5, 8. Beautiful, wonderful truth while we were still sinning. It's not like God says, oh, if I had only known that you were going to do that right then. He says, no, I, I had full knowledge of that. And I died for that. And I died for you. God is for you. It sounds so theologically inaccurate to say. It is 100% theologically true. God is for you. If he wasn't, we wouldn't even exist. He would have said, oh, Adam and Eve, huh? Reset. He didn't. He let it play out because He is for you and He wants to know you. He wants to love you. He wants you to be satisfied in who He is. Second one. We see that God is for us because we see that Jesus above all else treasured God as His most valued possession. In other words, Jesus was more satisfied in God than he was in any other thing. Nothing satisfied him more than God. Hebrews 12, 2. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. What took him through the cross? What took him through 33 years of dealing with people? What took him through 33 years of being used to living as God and like it says in Aladdin, phenomenal cosmic powers? living space. What took him through having to be a human? The joy of knowing the Father. The joy of God's glory. It was because he valued and treasured God more than anything else that he was able to defeat and conquer sin. So here's a different way for you to think about sin this week. Here's a way for you to think about it in light of the gospel. This is my last statement. Sin is what we do when we are not satisfied with who God is, with what he said about our lives, with where we're at, with the circumstances that he's given us, with whatever's going on. Sin is us manifesting. We do not believe in what God has said is true. Just think about that. How many of your sins can be chalked up to, I don't trust God. He has said that this is good. I do not trust that this is good. He has said that I don't need that. I do not trust that and I get it for myself. We sin because we believe that happiness is found in something else. This is what it's about. It's about joy and happiness. It's about pleasure. It's about uniting those desires in who the person of God is. And we believe in that when we sin over and above what God has promised and provided to us. If we truly believe that God's grace would deliver what it promises, it would be impossible for us to think about the sin that we are contemplating That is why Jesus was able to not sin, not because he was God, but because he valued God more than anything else, and because he was God. The pattern of the life of the believer is to go to the gospel. I hope I have shown that in Romans. I hope I have shown that in the rest of the New Testament. I hope I have given you reasons why it's not just about living up to a standard. It's not about... Drudgery. It's about embracing the fact that God loves us and He is for us. If you are watching or if you are here, it doesn't make a difference if you are a man or a woman, if you are a child or if you are an adult. It doesn't make a difference if you are a doctor or if you are a nurse's aide. It doesn't make a difference if you are in retirement or if you haven't even begun, begun to contemplate putting into retirement. It doesn't make a difference what you see in the litany of lists in your life, and you look through, when you look through the roles and you see the choices you've made, it doesn't make a difference. God's love is profound. Run to the gospel. Believer, run to the gospel. Find hope in the gospel. In the gospel, it's the power of God for salvation because the righteous live from faith initially, for faith, all the way through. I'll pray. The music team will come up. We'll sing Living Hope, and then I'll have the benediction. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the gospel. Hallelujah. Praise the one who set us free. God, you are the one who set us free. You are the one who looks at us in our repeated failures, in our mistakes, in our mess-ups, in our screw-ups, You are the one when we are so focused on what's going on, who's there and saying, I am more beautiful. I am more lovely. God, help us to see you in the gospel. Help us to see your love for us in the gospel. Help us to believe that you are for us in the gospel. Just let that truth reign over us, God. In your name we pray. Amen.